I am Eric Phillips, and I wholeheartedly endorse this podcast. Welcome along to the Rock and Goal podcast, the official podcast of Dumbarton Football Club. My name is Fraser Clark, and with Chris McMillan ruled out, we've moved in the emergency loan market to secure the services of club historian Jim McAllister for this week, and this week only, maybe. As it's technically our delayed Christmas special, we're also going to be joined by Suns boss Stevie Farrell for an in-depth dig into his career a wee bit later on. But we'll start by looking at how things have been since our last podcast, way back in November, before the game was Stranraer, that Suns won by two goals to nil. Excluding that, there's been six matches, four wins and two draws, and we'll start with the one that was probably my highlight of the season so far up at Elgin City. Suns won by four goals to nil, uh, and Jim, I think that we both spoke after the game and, and were almost blown away by the performance. Yeah, that was that was a performance that wasn't typical. Up until then, we, we'd been workmanlike, we had uh, grafted out a result, we'd soaked up pressure and then hit on the break. Elgin, we dominated the game probably from beginning to end, and although it took us a little while to, to seal it, it was a well-deserved victory. That's interesting, the point that you touched on there about, you know, workmanlike, and I think that had been the way that Dumbarton were playing, and it was very much, you know, effort, graft, and defensive solidity was getting over the line. And in that Elgin game, we saw a team playing with real flair and confidence. I think Calvin Orsi was the player who really embodied that, just the way he was taking players on in a way that we hadn't really seen from him before. Now, setting up the first goal by beating the defender, putting the ball into the box, just looked to give him a new lease of life, really, and, and since then he's really, really kicked on, but it wasn't just that, Greg Wilde scored a tremendous goal taking players on, and Ryan Wallace's goal, he made it look so easy for, for people like us sitting in the studio, like, what he did in the way he finished that low and hard in the bottom corner, that's an incredibly difficult skill. And he looked like he was having a kick about with his mates. Well, yeah, and the fourth goal, of course, was uh, Aaron Linus' strike, which was unexpected, you know, because Aaron hasn't been striking the ball at goal all season. Or all his career, if you speak to him. <laughs> yeah, well, I did suggest to him that I had him at the bottom of the list. I had him just marginally above Brett for the, for scoring a goal, and he said he might have put himself marginally below Brett for scoring a goal. <laughs> <laughs> it was incredibly, and it's a shame the Pixelot cameras up at Elgin didn't actually catch it, but I was... I think you were right behind it from one side yeah. of the stand. I was right behind it, behind the goal side. And it is just such a clean strike that you know, I was going to say nothing's going to stop that. If it's on target, nothing stops that apart from the net. If it's off target, it probably hits me. Because I was right in line with that and just saw the way that the ball moved. And it was it was a great strike. And incredibly, it was his second career goal. And I think 250-odd games, something like that. He's been a regular almost everywhere he's been right throughout his career. And it was his second career goal. He won't hit, won't hit one sweeter. That's for sure. Now he just doesn't need to hit one again. He scored it. He scored a screamer. That's it. So the week after that was, uh, if that was an uncharacteristically, I don't know the best way of putting it, uncharacteristically exciting, then that's harsh. But Dumbarton performance where I don't think anyone saw us going up to Elgin and scoring four goals. The next week was an uncharacteristically poor defensive performance against Forfar Athletic. And Forfar, to their credit, merited the point, I don't think anyone could disagree with that, but Suns were their own worst enemies at times in that game, weren't they? Yes, they were. The the, the two four for goals certainly came from defensive mistakes and although the man could have won the game, Forfer, when they went down to 10 men, sat in and made it difficult and it was extremely difficult to open them up. They weren't going to come out and play, they had their point, that's what they, they, they wanted. They were prepared to hang on and they hung on very well. And in that game, it almost felt like Forfar played Dumbarton at their own game because I thought defensively, Forfar were really, really good, especially they went down to 10 men, what, five minutes into the second half, Kyle Hutton picking up a second booking. And 
from that point onwards, Dumbarton had to work really, really hard to break them down. But when they did break them down, and it was, I think, a minute after Forfred taking the lead, it was one of the goals of the season in a completely different way to the goals up at Elgin. Yeah, I think you're right there. The difficulty was that we weren't getting in behind them because Forfar weren't allowing us to get in behind them. And that was a game that was foreign to Dumbarton because they've been a side that all season have hit on the break when they've had plenty of space to get down the touchlines, get balls into the box. Forfar just weren't going to allow us to do that. One sort of interesting thing from that game that's maybe worth picking up on as well is the two goal scorers. So you'd say for the first, what, August, September, October even, to a degree, Greg Wilde and David Wilson were stuck in the bench. They, they were having to wait for their chance. The players in their position were doing really, really well. And I think I remember looking at it and up to the Cumnock game, Greg Wilde had played something like 3% of minutes. The next week he played against Allen. He scored the winning goal. He's been a fixture in the team ever since. Against Forfar, he scored a terrific goal. And then David Wilson, who we'll come on to talk about because he's been very much sort of a key player over the past six games or so. But... Yeah, the two of them waiting for their chance, but when they come into the team, what an impact they both made. Well, I think that's indicative of a side that's uh, got a bit of spirit about it, is that the two players were out the side, but when you keep winning, they can understand why they're out the side and can't get back into it. It's when the side stops winning and players are still sitting on the bench that they get a bit frustrated. But those players recognise that seven wins in the trot at the beginning of the season, you can't change a winning team, I need to wait my time. And the two of them have taken it, what, what you always better than you probably would have thought because they've come in and hit the ground running and in actual fact they're scoring the, the goals uh, regularly. And if you look at where we are now, there's players like Ali Love at the start of the season, one of the first names in the team sheet. Finlay Gray has been out with injury and then had to work to earn his place back in the team. Ryan McGeever, club captain, I, I think a man who at the start of the season everybody would have said once he's fit, nailed on starter. But Dumbarton have defended so, so well that these players are now on the bench but they're having to work to make that impact when they come in. And Ali Love certainly did that against Albion Rovers. Yeah, that just reinforces what we were saying about Wilde and Wilson. The players are ready, they're willing to go, and recognise that there are players out there that are playing in a team that are, are winning. So they, they have to be patient and take their chance when it comes along. We're now joined for what is our delayed Christmas special by Suns boss Stevie Farrell. Uh, Stevie, first of all, thank you very much for joining us. And I, before a match day, we hope against Sterling Albion, but the game's in a wee bit of doubt. But I, a potentially huge game for Suns season. Absolutely is. I mean, but listen, I'm not trying to be the typical manager quote that you downplay it. There's uh, before today, there's 54 points to play for, and after today, there's 51 points to play for. You know, if we win the game, we go seven points clearer. Still in Albion, and still in Albion with 51 points. If I was in still in Albion's shoes, going seven points behind as a manager, I'd be saying we've everything to play for and we're right in this. Likewise, if they, they were to, to be the victors today, it's one point, and there's still 51, point, 51 points to play for, and likewise, you know, with the draw. So, you know, sometimes that gets overplayed in football and all leagues. You know, it's, it's a massive game, it's this and it's that, it's, it's the next game, you know, and that makes it the most important game. And I'm not trying to underplay it. That's just the, the mentality, the motto of our dressing room all season. It's just about the next game. And that next game is the most important one. And that's today, hopefully, if it, if it goes ahead. We won't obviously dig into it too much because it's, it's... I feel like I talk to you post-match every week and we talk about the game and things like that. But it's just about getting to know you a wee bit more and a bit more about your background. And that's what I've enjoyed doing with players on this podcast. So take me back right to the start then. And what's Stevie Farrell's earliest memory of football? Listen, I, I had a ball like probably most young kids in, in those days and you know been brought up in the seventies. Uh, I think you know we didn't have the gadgets of today and 
you know, balls were, were, were our gadget. And, you know, I remember playing a grass verge, we used to call it in the scheme that I was brought up in. And we all met the other lads, you know, no matter what age, I think I was about five or six playing against 13, 14 year olds. And, but that's what you did. That's what you did in those days. And you get the ball and, and you played. And the next thing you heard your mother or you seen your mother with the face owner having to walk down to the grass fields to get you. And, you know, I'm sure I was like many kids about that, you know. So talk me through how you started playing for a team because you obviously started your career in, in professional game at Stoke City but before that there must have been boys clubs and things like that so talk me through that. Period. I played in a local boys club and I actually live in the village now, Comores Glen Cairn, that was my dad that got me there I think when I was seven, under seven, under eights, uh, that I went there first and uh, I played there a couple of years and I still I still meet people in the village that I know from, from those days or those years ago and, and it's nice because it was a, a village community club and it was very, it's, it's no longer there unfortunately, but it was, uh, I've got great memories of it. And then I moved on to, to Valspar when I was 12, they were they were kind of one of the bigger clubs around about Ayrshire. Uh, and they came and it was a bit of travelling for me, do you know what I remember? Again, things you would probably never ask kids to do these days. I left Kilmarnock on a Tuesday night and I got two buses to go to Ayr and then got two buses back at 10 o'clock and I was only 13 year old, you know, so... I'd never expect my kids to do that, <laughs> and I'm a dad these days, but that was just a done thing back then. And if you wanted to play with the bigger clubs, then you know, my mother didn't drive, my dad didn't drive, and you know, public transport was the only way to commute. So I went there and I played. And then I had one season there, and then Kilmarnock. I went to Kilmarnock as a, as a schoolboy at 13 or 14, uh, and I went into Kilmarnock there until I went south. How how big a moment did that feel for you? Because you go from being Stevie Farrell playing with his mates to Stevie Farrell thinking to himself, "Hang on a minute here, you know maybe I can make a career in this." I think I'm probably different from from a lot of parents, and and, and probably as a kid as well. I think I, I don't think I've just turned out this way. I think my dad brought me up this way. When I signed with Kilmarnock, I signed with Kilmarnock Boys Club. I didn't sign with Kilmarnock Football Club. Do you know there's this thing these days that young kids sign with a club and they've got the tracksuit and people can make more of it than it than it really is. And it's important you let kids play. You let them breathe, you let them play, you let them go and express yourself. And that's what my era was allowed to do. You know, I think some of the players that, that were played with at my era, my age group, and went on to have a fantastic career in the professional game. And I think a big a big aspect to that is they were no they were no micromanaged. They were allowed to go and express themselves, allowed to go play with a school team, allowed to play with a boys' club team, allowed to go and play with the, the professional team, and just play as much football and as many touches of the ball as they probably could to, to, to improve every day, every week, every year. Uh, and I think that's what we did back then. Do you know, we we had a, we had more freedom to go and express ourselves and play and enjoy. Most importantly, enjoy. How many players that you played with or played against that sort of time? Because Ayrshire is a bit of a hotbed of footballers, even in this squad, they're like Sally, love being Ayrshire boys. But how many players did you come up against then that went on to have a career, be that you know at a higher level or, or like yourself, the guys that you would have played against when you were 13 and then maybe came up against in your own career in juniors and things like that? There was many. Gary Holt, Al Mahood, Neely Murray, Blue Rangers, uh, Brian O'Neill, Blue Celtic, went on to have a great career. They were all my age group. My age group. Jim Beatty, you know, no longer ways. Jim played against Jim, and I played with Jim. I played with Jim at St Mun as well. Jim was a was a, a fellow player at St Mun when I joined, but we came through. Kept you know, playing against each other every every Saturday in life as a boys' club. So there, there was many. Craig Flanagan was a fantastic player at that that age. He went on to, and he's now Rangers, you know, fitness expert with the first team. And you know, Craig went down that journey, but he had a fantastic career. Uh, Craig, when he was younger, so there was many young players at that age group. You know, that was. Uh, it was a it was a good time for Scottish football in terms of young footballers that went on from that 
you know, age and era to 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 have a real place in the game and, and, and sustainable place in the game. Do you know they won these if these players were in for a season and it was, you know, one hat wonders, they went on and made a real good name for themselves in the game, whether that be at full time, England or part time in Scotland, but they had they generally did well in the professional game. So you made a, a move that I can't be very many teenagers playing for Kamarnik made when you went down to Stoke City. So talk me through first of all, how does you know, a teenager playing youth team football at Kamarnik, how does he end up how does he end up going down to Stoke City? I had a bit of interest at that time, you know, I'd, Rangers were, were in, I had played with them, I had went in with them, they had asked me and Kamalak, my dad always says that Kamalak were, were late to the game and uh, I don't think it would have made a difference. Kamalak, the week before I went was due to go to England to Stoke City, I'd been down to Stoke City three, four times and in the days you used to go down at Easter holidays and summer holidays and so forth and you know, every hot school holiday you went to that club and I'd been down for about a year. And then they offered me uh, the two-year deal uh, and then the two-year professional deal thereafter, so the four-year deal. And it was only then that Kilmarnock started to you know, involve all and sundry to try, and, to try and get me. They signed up. I remember going in and meeting the Kilmarnock manager at that time with my dad. But I just made my mind up, Fraser, that I wanted to go to England. You know, I was quite headstrong and I, was quite mature, I always felt I was quite mature for my age. Uh, and I knew it was a big move. I'd never left my family before. But I, I just always felt, and, and I'm a big believer in my gut feeling, and I had a gut feeling it was the right move for me. And I've got to say, you know, I, I loved it. I loved it. It was, it was defining for me, both in football and in life in general. How did you find the moving away from your family sort of side of things? Because we spoke to Calvin Orsi on the podcast about it. He obviously went up to Aberdeen, and he was like, I think, I think he said that every weekend he was just crying and just wanted his mum. No, I listen to Calvin, and, and you know, everybody's different. I, I wasn't like that. I mean, I remember we were laughing about this actually at, at New Year with my, my sisters. I've got quite a big family, but you know, there's no many parents that would ship you off. Your your 16 year olds leaving to go to Stoke City for the first time they've ever left you, and you'd be shipped off to your aunties to stay because they were going on holiday at Blackpool. Uh, my man and dad and the rest of the family. So rather than wait and delay their holiday at Blackpool to see me off and the, the good farewell, they they decided to leave me my aunties and go on the holiday. So, so but that's you know that was the grounding that you had back then. That you know like I say that. I certainly didn't have a soft ground and I wouldn't change it for the world. But I I went there, my dad said to me, Do you know, you've got you've got two options, either either fail or you succeed and that's been really my kinda of mantra in life, Do you know, there only has two options, that bit in the air is that bit in the middle degree is probably an excuse more than more, more than most times. I was gonna say, how much did you take, even as a sixteen, seventeen year old going down there, that still here we are, what you're fourteen nine, he says yeah. nervously, not wanting to <laughs> get that one wrong, but how much do you take from that you learned from when, when you were sixteen, seventeen that you still use maybe every day or that you still try and impart on players that you're talking to who are twenty years younger than you or whatever? Well I'll I I have said it before in many a podcast I worked with the best coach I've ever worked with and I've worked with some good people in the game, but Tony Lacey was the best coach on the grass that I've ever worked with, I've ever seen. He was he was miles in front of his time and when I think of the players that he brought through at Stoke City uh, and then thereafter at Wolves when he went to Wolves, you know, I'd, I could name a, a, a host of Premier League players that, that you know, Peter B. Gray and, and players like that that went to Everton that you know, back in the day that Tony and started with Tony and Tony was a fantastic coach. But what he was brilliant at as well is he was just he taught you so many life skills. Do you know and and I always again it's a story I always tell it it's and I've told the players this at 16 do you know I went down there thinking big player do you know these clubs are, are after you do you know I must be a really good player and I went down there I was a million miles off at Fraser I was last in every pre-season run I was overweight uh, I couldn't keep up when I played in the small side of games I was nowhere near it 
and Tony took me in after a month and said, uh, you've got a month to lose X in body weight uh, or if you don't see improvements, we're going to rip up your contract. And I remember phoning home, so one time I did cry because I phoned home to my dad for a big red telephone box because you didn't have mobile phones in the days uh, and I told him the story and I remember my dad's words this day. He says, well, what are you greeting for? You either got the road in a month or you stay. And that was it. And that's, you know, that was my dad's mentality with me and I would never change it because that's the way I am and you know probably my two kids will tell you that's very much the way um, in, in their life as well but that's the way I enjoy being I just enjoy that that ultimatum of success or failure Now this is just because you touched on Peter Beagrey there but Chris who normally does the podcast is ill at the moment and I'd messaged him before and said is there anything that you want me to ask Faz when he comes in he's a Sheffield United fan so he said just read out the direct message. Also, from a Selfish Blades point of view, I was going to see if you remembered Lee Sanford, Peter Beagrey and Chris Kamara, who all played for United, and just generally his memories from that season, uh, from that season, because we won promotion and had Brian Dean and Tony Agana up front. They did. I mean, I broke into, at the end of that season, I broke into Stoke City's first team, uh, and I was running about the first team squad. I was lucky, because as a 17-year-old, I was running about the first team squad, and these were all first team regulars. I mean, Chris Kamara... Lee Sanford, Peter Beagrey were all first team regulars at that time. I mean, all, I mean, Lee Sanford was a defender that not a lot of have heard of, but he played with Birmingham City, he played with you know, Sheffield United. Kamara is obviously well known for his, his TV uh, escapades, and, and you know, and obviously he's been through a, a serious time just now. We all wish him well, and but the reality is he was a uh, he was a big player at that time, and and Peter Beagrey just you knew Peter Beagrey was going to play at the top level. You know, when Everton came in, it was no surprise. But they were all good players, you know, a, a dressing room full of good players. And uh, and as a young player, I was just a sponge. Do you know, I just listened to them, I watched them, I took everything from them, I wanted to be them, do you know, I wanted to watch the good things that they did, and I wanted to watch the not so good things that they did. And I was just intrigued by good good professional footballers. I just loved people who were dedicated to their profession and you know, three of the guys they were. You obviously went on that journey then between being told basically look it's not looking like you're up to it very quickly to being on the fringes of the first team squad at such a young age. So, how what changed? Talk me through your routine in that point because you can't. I mean, you can't improve your ability that, that much in such a short period of time. So a lot of it must have been psychological and, and physical. Everything was psychological and physical, Fraser. Because I say that to players, do you know, if I take any player, if I handpick any player out of dress room there in the current day, their abilities probably been the same since they were eight, nine year old, you know, 13, 14, they've developed it, they've grew. But they get to, you get to a stage where your ability never changes. What you're able to do with the ball, and able to manipulate the ball and pass the ball, it never changes. You're, that's always there, but it's up here. It's up here nine times out of ten that, you know, has an effect on what you do on the pitch. And, you know, sometimes, and I say this as a manager, and I'm sure fans at all clubs don't appreciate this, you know, football players have got lives, football players have got backstories, football story players at part-time level get work, you know, and there's all sorts of things going in players' lives that I'm not going to disclose in this podcast, but you know, I've been involved with players a long, long time and I've been teammates of players a long, long time and, and some of the stories I could tell you would just, be, you know, your mouth would be open, it's, because it, I'm no different, they're just human beings first and foremost, their brothers, you know, their dads, their, uh, their sons, and the reality is, they go through all the difficulties that each and every one of us go through, and sometimes that has an effect on what you do on a pitch. 
that you made me feel now that the reason I'm not a footballer isn't the fact that I'm, I'm rubbish. It's just the fact that psychologically I'm not strong enough to do it as well. Well, listen, it's, a, it's like a golfer. I, I always say that with golfers. I mean, I go on the golf course and I murder. Frank McEwen thinks he's magnificent, but you know, as an odd time in a golf course, I'll hit a shot and you'll go, I'll go you know, two foot for the hole and you'll go wow. But the difference is I can't hit these shots. I can only hit one in a million. You know, golfers and the top golfers hit them week in, week out, week in, week out, and that's the day. We practice, 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 mental toughness, you know, character, all those things that make them the good golfer. So the reality is, what, you, what you've got in your head has a big, big impact on, on what you do on the pitch with your feet. There's no doubt about that. So talk me through, then, you left Stoke in 1992 and came back up to Scotland to St Mirren. So talk me through, I leaving Stoke must have been a bit of a, a bit of a wrench, but also coming back home and having your family around you again must have been, aye, must have been quite nice from that respect. Lou McCarry came in at Stoke and, and again I, I went and played a pre-season because by that time I'm, you know, I think I'm 20, 21, 22 and I'd been about the first team and, and he took me, I play, we played a game and then he, he, he took me that night because he he'd come over to watch the, the first team on Isle of Man and he, he took me from that game, uh, me and him travelled on the boat for, for, the, for the tournament the, the first team I played in, so it started really well under Lou uh, and then you know he started, or the club started to be mess me about in relation to contract and whatever. And that again that's something I've always been very principled. Do you know, I'm no somebody that'll that'll beg for anything in life. I, I've always been principled. If I believe something's right, then you know I'll stick to my guns and, and I didn't think that the contract that Stoke City were, were offering me at that time was 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 respectful. Uh, and I had an agent at that time and you know, as agents do, they go and start working and speaking to other people and I got a phone call that someone would be interested and I went up and I travelled in a week, I think, with St Man and trained with him and then Jimmy Bowen, who you know, I still speak to this day, I love Jimmy. He's uh, he's just one of the big characters of Scottish football. And Jimmy Jimmy wanted to sign me and you know I signed in a two year deal and had a fantastic time there, you know, under Jimmy. So no, no regrets. I'm no one for looking back and having regrets, Fraser, you know, I just I think things happen for a reason. You're on a journey and whatever that journey is, you know, you'll get to where you get to. And that time in St Martin you basically became a first team regular from what I can see from statistics and things like that you're playing every week playing at a really really good level that must have been a, a great time for you personally to be playing at that sort of club it was it was uh, the first year I, I went in there I played most weeks and and to be fair Jimmy I think Jimmy will be the first to tell you this there was a midfield three probably myself Paul Lambert and, and, and Chick Charlie that, that season and we, we all complimented each other because Paul was very different for what he ended up like at Celtic and Borussia Dortmund Paul was uh, Paul was the one that hit the box. He was the one that got forward, uh, and Chick played off the left side in terms of uh, his balance, and I played predominantly off the right side. But there's a difference between Paul and Chick. They were better players than me. Do you know they were better players than me? They were miles better than me as, as footballers, and 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 I accepted that. I never ever thought I was anywhere near the level of, of the as footballers, and that's the reason that that I probably fell out of the senior game. I know I went back in with part time a couple of times, but fell out of the full time senior game because. I, I was a decent player, but I wasn't at that level. I wasn't, and it wasn't through, it wasn't through my mind, and it wasn't through my physicality, because I was probably along with Chick Charlie as fit as envy at some with my stats, and and I was lucky enough to play a great deal. But the second season, Jimmy changed it, and he went a wee bit more robust in terms of defensive, and he brought in Jamie Fullerton, who went on to have a fantastic career, but it was different for me than Paul and Chick. Paul left. He went to he went to Motherwell. Uh, Chick ended up having an incident at United and we'll not say any more about that and he left and he went with Paul McIntyre, Barry McLaughlin and Jamie Fullerton which, listen, 
as a manager, I respected. I wanted to play. I didn't always agree with Jimmy. Like my players will not always agree with me, but I respected he that he had the right to play and play the style he wanted. And that style probably, you know, me and Jimmy have since spoken about. It, probably just didn't suit me, you know, because I wanted to go on the ball, I wanted to play, I wanted to go and pop it around corners and get it back, and and that wasn't the style that Jimmy went with in the kind of latter part, and that's why I, I left the club. Just interesting, a couple of things that you'd said, knowing the sort of character you are. Now, you might swing for me after this, but is there part of you that thinks you made the most? So, you'll get footballers who are blessed with like phenomenal natural ability and they don't make the most of it. And then you get guys who are maybe not blessed with that natural ability, but who work and knock their pan in. Would you put yourself more in that sort of category? I, I, I had to, Fraser. I had to work hard. Uh, even when I went part time, I, I take a Sunday off. Do you know, I take a Sunday off. And I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that for anybody else. That's just Stevie Farrell. That was my mind. That's my mind. Worked out. I'm not saying it's right because some people might think that's an overload. But my mind was that uh, my rest day was a Sunday and I had to work even at part time. I had to work that wee bit extra. And and when I went to part time level, I always felt where it was senior. So obviously, Dennis Muir, Stranara. And when I dropped into the, the west of Scotland, I always felt I was. I was better than most, you know. I just had that feeling at that that level that, uh, but I knew I had to work. I knew I had to work really, really hard, uh, and that was just part of my daily and weekly routine. You obviously had a hugely successful time in junior football, and in junior football round about that time, especially Jim will, will have the knowledge of the places that you would have been going at that sort of stage in your career. But first of all, as an Ayrshire boy, do you think people maybe in more central Scotland appreciate just how big? these clubs are down there because I mean you're looking at you were at co-winning when they won pretty much everything there's obviously you'd spend time at Cumnock and they've got the Cumnock Hawk and like Derby which is one of the one of the fiercest derbies in the country so do you think that people maybe fully appreciate just how big that is and especially with you being from Ayrshire yourself I, I, I've got a very strong view on this and it's I think every fan and every club is insular you always look at it through the prism of your own club and that and that's that, that's fine, but sometimes I think you need to be objective. And I think there's too much made today and of all days, you know, where this, the, the pyramid is now in that wasn't in a mad day. But these are big clubs. Auchinleck is a massive club. Do you take Darville, for instance? Darville, when I played, was a small club, and that's no disrespect to Darville. You know, good people worked really, really hard at these small clubs like Darville and Muirkirk and, you know, and, and uh, Craig Mark and all this, the smaller clubs worked really hard and it's testament to these clubs that are still competing and you know within the pyramid and then you've got your Rock and Lex and you've got Darville these days who are a big club and Cohen and Rangers who I played with Cumnock, Pollock they're big clubs but I wish they would stop this competition of the SPFL and the SPFL would stop this competition with the West of Scotland be respectful you're in the league you're in and you're if you're good enough it's like us in this league if we're good enough we'll go out of it if we're not good enough we'll not go out of it and it's a wee bit like, you know, Darvo, Walk and Lek, if they're good enough, regardless of budgets, whatever, they'll get out of the leaks and they'll go through the pyramid. And there's an opportunity. The one thing I will say is I think the pyramid needs to be opened up fairer. Because I don't that is the one gripe that I think those clubs down there have got. And that's me saying that as part of the SBFL. I think that it should be a two up, two down, or a one up and the the, the playoff system like there is in other leagues for the Lowland League in the west of Scotland. You know, but that's that's for for two people with some blazers on that probably are a million miles away from your thinking, Fraser. Would you, as a player, you know, looking back then, would you have liked to have seen a pyramid brought in at that point? Was it ever anything that crossed your mind playing at that level, or was it, you know, just not really something you ever thought about? 
I mean, Lenaki went to Kawin, and the man who kind of led that was Alan McClucky, do you know, and, and, and probably at that time, most people heard the Alan McClucky, he was the one that, you know, he was a money man, Alan, do you know, has, uh, was a successful businessman, Kawin was his town and his club, and you know, he had every right to invest in it, he, he was interested in Celtic Rangers, his club was Kawin Rangers, and he wanted to invest in it, and he, he put an investment in, and, but I'll tell you what, he worked, he worked so hard, Alan, he worked so hard, you know, it wasn't just about money for Alan, I mean, and one of the things that Alan had, Alan was talking about the pyramid system 20 years ago and he was talking about changing the word junior football. He, didn't, he never liked the word junior football, never liked it, didn't believe in it. Uh, and so, so there was pioneers re- even back then, but there wasn't, a, there wasn't a, probably a changing in the hearts and minds like there's been in recent years. And it has been for the better. But I'm just sorry that people like Alan McClucky miss, are missing out on that. I know Alan still goes to to the games in the west of Scotland and, and, and looks after he was involved with me at Cumnock. But these people were crucial and critical to keeping you know, the junior game high and you know, in people's faces and, and, a, and a good product. And, and you know, people like Alan and others, Open Lake Talbot, Henry Dummigan, all these people that have just driven their, their clubs. Uh, and you know, it's a testament to that, to that league and that, that fraternity of football that they're now prospering under the, under the pyramid and, and long may it continue and hopefully it gets better. Just, you know, while you're sort of talking about that stage in your career, that would have been, I'm thinking, where you met somebody who has gone on to be an integral part of your backroom team and Eric Phillips. Would that be right, that you met Eric when you were playing on that level? Actually, I did. I, I, Eric came and played with us uh, at that level, but that's that wasn't... Eric and I were never close. Do you know, it's... Uh, I've, I've always really done that way with my, my assistants. I, I, I don't really like a pals act. Uh, people say that me and Frank were, were pals. We weren't the pals. Frank played with me and Stephen. Uh, he was he was our captain. He was a, he was a leader in the dressing room, and uh, but when Frank left, f- Frank was probably an associate in me. Like he, you know, because you have you have real friends in football, and then you have associates, and he was an associate. And then when uh, when I wanted to bring somebody else in to 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 Sunar, Frank, uh, I think it's right that you people who are looking to go on the ladder that opportunity because Stephen gave it me. Uh, and I gave I gave Frank that opportunity, and you know, I wouldn't I would never change it. He, you know, he's a fantastic assistant. He's uh, he's somebody that him and I constantly disagree, and that's the way it should be as a manager and assistant. And Eric's the same. Do you know Eric was somebody that was when Chris Fahey left Stranraer as as goalkeeper coach. Do you know Eric was one of the people that we identified just because I knew him. I knew his integrity. Knew he was a good lad. Knew he was loud on MD in Scottish football. So. Uh, so it was important we got him in, and you know, and the one thing you need, and I'm sure you appreciate this, the one thing you need as a manager is when you're away somewhere else and the world's ticking over differently from football, that you don't need wing mirrors with your backroom team, you don't be looking over your shoulder, you know, you don't need to worry what's getting said behind your back because they're right in your corner and that loyalty's there and that's important and they too have an extreme loyalty and we have an extreme loyalty to each other and that's, you know, you can't buy that sometimes. You touched obviously on Stevie Aiken there, and I'm jumping forward a wee bit, but that was obviously when you first came to Dumbarton as Stevie's assistant. So, talk to me, I guess, first of all, about how Stevie approached you to join him at Stranraer and then how that sort of relationship developed. It's probably a best story for Stevie to tell. I mean, it sounds kind of egotistical, but it's not meant that way in any, any shape or form. And I didn't know Stevie, I played against him uh, when, he, when he was senior and with Martin, I was at Mar and, and, you know, and, and Stennis Muir, and then when we dropped into to the west of Scotland, I think he played with Atherley, and we, we played against each other, we knew each other, of each other, but we had hardly spoken a word, 
uh, and then Stevie was looking for an assistant, but unknown to me, somebody who's a friend of both days at that time, uh, Alan Waddle, who was at the club for a for a while. Alan had worked with me as a player, but again, I wasn't as close then to Alan as I, as I am now in life. And Alan had said to Stevie, "You need to go and get Stevie Farrell." Uh, he says that's who you should get. He says he's he's ideal. So in terms of what you want, because he was looking for me a coach to take the, the the players on the grass, and Stevie out of the blue phoned for a friendly when I was with Covenant Manager and I says absolutely and then I thought it strange that two weeks later he phoned for an R friendly and I says absolutely because you just wanted to play and you're testing yourself against obviously SPFL higher opposition but unknown to me it was, a, it was an interview effectively because he was watching everything I do and listening to every word I say that side of the pitch and then I was in London in business and he phoned me and he says do you fancy a chat and I says about what he says I'd like to chat to you about football and I went and met him in Silverburn I think and uh, the rest of the history they offered me a job as assistant manager and I didn't hesitate I just had a good feeling and you know, that was 12 years ago now so uh, it's went well since then How did you uh, I, so when you you made the decision to move from Stranraer to Dumbarton and I guess that very much would have been a, a decision between the two of you it's not going to be if Stevie says I'm going up to you like you would have spoken about it so how difficult was that as a decision to make because that was a, a tremendous Stranraer team at the time It was but everything's relevant Fraser because Dumbarton were sitting in the championship and we knew that, you know, if you look at, and I'm not going to name figures on this, but I know what Dumbarton figures were in that championship that year and I knew what Dundee United's and, you know, Hibs and Hearts were and, you know, the, the pool of just testing yourself against those types of clubs was probably too much because, no disrespect to Sunar, we were in League One, we had finished, I think, second and third, uh, and we were always in the, there or thereabouts in the playoffs in a three or four year there and we just felt it was the next it was the next stage of our journey. Uh, and we decided to make the move and great respect for the people at Sunar, still to this day have great respect for the people at Sunar, both the committee and the fans. And that'll never change, no matter how much I get called X, Y, and Z at the side of the pitch, you know, because that just goes with the territory when you leave. And you'll be used to that. You know, yeah, you don't absolutely. you don't play football. I won't with your own fans. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously you where Stevie Aitken's assistant for some absolutely tremendous times at Dumbarton and that, you know, that period where it began with beating Hibs at home and St Mirren away, I mean, that must have been a bit of a sort of career highlight. Obviously, out with your managerial side of things, but as a coach to take on Hibs with a club the size of Dumbarton and beat them at home, what a first impression to make as a management team? It was, but with good players. Do you know, I think back and you had players like Gary Fleming and Darren Barr and, do you know, Mark Doherty. We had players that, I spoke about it a wee bit earlier there that was you know, I was a sponge, these were sponges, you know, they wanted to they wanted to, to continue, even although the level some of them had played out, they wanted to continue to develop and learn and be better. And you know, they all bought into the way we had to play in the championship and the way that we, we wanted to play. And if I think of the first two games, their shape was phenomenal in the first two games, you know, against St Mum and, and, and Hibs. It was phenomenal. Gary Fleming in particular did a probably a role that if you ask Gary he hadn't been used to and he did it really, really well. And, and when we went up the top end of the pitch, we always looked a threat because Gary Fleming didn't care whether he was playing against, you know, Castle Milk Rovers or whether he was playing against the AC Milan. He just had any respect for anybody, Gary, as a centre-half. And he just went and played because he was a good player. There must have been something that as well that you you and Stevie, I guess, both would have taken to about Gary Fleming is that he came up through the junior ranks. He, you know, he wasn't one of these academy kids or anything like that. And he'd learnt his trade at that level that you guys had played at as well. So he's... 
I mean, he's unusual. There aren't very many. You think Chris Doolan and Chris Erskine is the two guys who stepped up and made that phenomenal impact from junior football, but Gary was, was very, very close to their sort of levels as well. Gary, Gary was a good player. Gary will not mind me saying this because he knows what I think of him. If Gary didn't eat as many wispers and drink as many cans of Coca-Cola, then Gary Fleming would have played at a much higher level for a little longer. There's no doubt about it. But Gary, Gary was content, and do you know there's a lot to be said about contentment in life. Do you know it's probably the best thing you'll ever get is contentment in life. And Gary was one of the boys. He was content. He enjoyed his football. He enjoyed the environment. He was a fan's favourite. He did very well for us. He played every week. Do you know? And, and he knew he was a big player. And and Gary Gary fitted into that well. And he was a, he was a great lad. I remember the first time me and Stephen actually took the job. The players all came in. And, uh, players are all sitting in the dressing room. Some we had met. Some we hadn't met. And there's Gary walking in with a Mars bar and a can of brew. And so he's nothing changes for him, is that? So, <laughs> that was Gary. I'd heard that. I'd heard stories about hot noodles, uh, hot, noodle, uh, hot dogs and super noodles and things like that being kind of what, what fired Gary from. So there you go. That was it. Gary was <laughs> unique in that way. Do you know what I mean? He just went, so people looked at Gary and said, ah, oh, his body shapes this and his body shapes that. But as I said earlier, what he could do at the end, the way things at the end of his legs, do you know, that was the most important thing with Gary. You obviously left the Martin and went back to Stranar to be a manager again. Was getting back into management always a name or was that just a thing that you thought actually, you know, the club, the club you've got an affinity with, you've got a lot of friends there, it was too good an opportunity to turn down? I just I just felt it was right. Do you know, I, I, I manage in my, my day job, so in terms of the management side of things and managing people uh, and managing individuals and all sorts of individuals, that, that just comes natural. So I didn't think that that would be so challenging. Uh, so I felt that management was a natural transition from the from the coaching, but I'll always say this, you know, coaching's the best bit of management for me. You know, being on the grass will always will always be the best bit for me. I just, uh, I just, I love coaching. I love, I love learning. Uh, I love making sure, I love making sure that you know, players have got as much knowledge as they possibly can, both about when we've got the ball and when we've not got the ball. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, sometimes as a coach, that's the most challenging because you've got to go and find that solution again. So I always knew that I wanted to get any management, but I didn't want to lose that touch with the with the coaching side and the grass. But Stranar was was a good move for me with good people. Uh, Stephen was respectful of it and, and that I've got a lot to thank him for. And, uh, and I went back there and do you know that's quite my journey at Stranraer. We were, I don't want to sort of gloss over your time at Stranraer and things like that, but obviously mindful of the time that we're at and, and things. So you obviously came back to the Martin in the summer of 2021, that would have been. That must have been, well, I talk me through how that move came about, first of all, when, and I, it must have been almost like life going full circle. You went from assistant at Stranraer to assistant at Dumbarton to manager at Stranraer to manager at Dumbarton. I, I had an approach from a third party uh, to see if I would be I would be interested in the Dumbarton job, and obviously I knew that I'd looked at Dumbarton the previous year and I knew it was a struggle uh, in terms of you know they'd finished ninth, and I'll be honest with you you know I've not said this quite openly, but I knew it was going to be a struggle last year, so that was the one thing I'm saying do again with that struggle. I do a stray with Stranar. Obviously, we just missed it with yourselves in the playoffs, and I felt if we had added to the group at Stranar, then we could have we could have kicked on in League Two again. Or did I take that opportunity in League One? But what I said to Dumbarton when I met them, and I and I went and met them, was that I believed that this was longer project than one year because if I take Dumbarton out of the equation and look at this year, you know, the two lowest budgets in League One this year, 
are tenth and ninth, and it's no coincidence. The two lowest budgets in League One last year were tenth and ninth. League One has changed the dynamic of League One has changed such way. Kelty Hearts, we Cove Rangers who were there last year, you know, with Dunfermline, with with Falkirk, you know, with Alloa, we all, all these clubs that have dropped down. You know, and it's no disrespect to anybody, it's just understanding it's understanding the game as long as I've been in it. You understand budgets, you understand the big, big differential and, and having the right budget at your disposal in the right league. And I knew League One was going to be tough last year. It was going to be tough and, and so it proved. Uh, but I just felt it was it was right because I felt it was a longer term project. If the board backed me, and I needed that, they needed trust because there was a lot of people that put it where it's at. There was a lot of people wanting out of the club. Uh, but I felt that sustainability of both the management team and the consistency of the player group uh, and the vision that I had to ensure that we built that consistency and that structure up with a player profile. Like we kept nine last year. What would probably be again this year I'd look to keep 12 or 13 and so forth because that's the model that we chose that's the model I brought and they're the best two per best arguably the best two performing part-time clubs in Scotland but they weren't they always do you know so I just think Dumbarton had to look at a longer term approach and to be fair to the people I spoke to the chairman Colin uh, Jose everybody bought into that they all bought into it and you know touch wood we're only halfway through a season so nobody's getting carried away but you know, we're certainly, we're certainly on, on road this year of where we believed and what we spoke about at the, the, the start of my journey last year. That's something I remember you saying, I can't remember if it was Dick Campbell or Stuart Petrie, and he said the best teams either have the biggest budgets or basically the most stability in their squad, and Dumbarton are never going to have the biggest budget. I mean, you'd have to drop a long way for Suns to have the biggest budget, but what they have had this season, if you look through the team, aye, it's not been you know the same 11 that took the field last year, but there's been that core group of players, guys like Carsey, Bucky, you've got Eden Lynch coming back in, Greg Wilde was here for the back end of last season, Calvin Orsay's played almost every game in your time as manager, in fact I think he might well have played every game in your time as manager, but that's something that Dumbarton haven't had, you know, where you can say there's eight or nine players staying every summer, I mean I think back to the end of Jim Duffy's first season and into his second season, Kyle Hutton, Stuart Carswell and Connor Brennan who'd only played I think twice the season before the three players that stayed and there was just no continuity and that is now the case It's massive You look at the management list the top two managers longest serving managers in Scotland are Dick Campbell and Stuart Petrie so you do your own sums sometimes so, listening there's a fine line between success and failure and there's a fine line between moans and groans and pats in the back it's the finest line, but sometimes you've got to step away from all that and you've got to look at a longer term project and a longer term picture. I remember Dick Campbell saying to me, he says, Faz, the same players are a core of the same players and nucleus of the same players. And there probably there comes a time where you've got to change that and Dick, I think, is doing that now in the transfer window in January, probably the biggest influx he's ever had. But up until now, Dick's kept the same players from League Two. And he's, I remember what he said to me, he says, listen, son, they tell me they weren't good enough for League Two. Then they tell me they weren't good enough for League One. Then they tell me they weren't good enough for the Championship. She's I know them all. She's because I knew they were. It's about having that, that confidence having that belief, in the group. Having, having that belief, and it's what you add run about that core. And that's what we did last year. Do you know, I think if you probably asked, and no disrespect to most fans, if you'd asked them last year, at the end of last year, they'd probably get rid of most of the squad. But do you know what? I felt that wasn't the right decision, and time will tell what it was. 
I feel if we kept the nucleus of the squad and then added your Linuses and you know the ones that I've added this year, your Ali Loves to that 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 group, then we would become better again and stronger again. And you know, as I say, we're only halfway through a season, so nobody's getting carried away. But certainly can only judge it in the results have been. You certainly can't judge it in the results that still to come. And the results it's been, then you know, it's proven. It's it's been a good it's been a good way of thought. It's not something that I want to because I don't want to talk about this season too much until it's until it's over, basically, until we can evaluate the whole season. But so far, now, I think I joked with you about this last week. I know that there's nothing you like more in football than a clean sheet. And last season, I, th- I think the number of clean sheets you could count on one hand. This season, Brett Long's obviously set a club record. I think that's 10 for him, 2 for Harry Brown. So from that point of view, if you're building on defensive solidity, if you're keeping clean sheets, you're not losing games of football. Oh, you're not. And... It comes back to something you, you said in your, your previous question, Fraser. Gregor Buchanan had 11 different centre-back partners last year. That's never going to be successful at any club. If you went to Carter Vickers and at Celtic and you gave them 10 different partners during the course of your season, Celtic would lose more goals than they've lost, without a shadow of a doubt, because your, your centre-back pairing is, is your core and, and what you're, based, you know, you're built on in, t- in terms of defensively. But what we've done this year is... Primarily, there's been five of them. There's no moved. Do you know, Long, Linus, the Cannon, Carswell, and Enough, and Touchwood. They've been free for health-wise for injury. Uh, Linus had a, had a wee one out last week, and and Bucky is obviously getting the suspension coming next week against Four Five. But over the whole, they've been there and available. And that makes a difference because if you can get that back five consistently playing together. I mean, the best back four there's ever been in the history of the game. There's probably been two at the AC Milan with Baresi and, and Maldini, and then there's probably been the Arsenal back four. And it's no consistency, it's no coincidence that they all play together week in, week out, week in, week out. Because that's how you develop partnerships. But right. last year we never got that. And last of all, sorry, last of all, I just I like to kind of throw in a bit of a curveball question to people at the end. So if you take you at your prime, whenever you think that you were at your fittest, your sharpest, you were at your best as a footballer, you don't have to say who you'd be dropping. Would you get in this Dumbart and start an 11? Every day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> the midfield three would never play. <laughs> uh, listen, I, I've had my time in the game and uh, do you know I wouldn't change it. I was probably a couple of yards short in terms of pace. I've been probably playing at a higher level for a lot longer, in my opinion. Uh, and that's that I back myself with, with that. But also, as I said earlier, I wasn't good enough. You know, that's 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 a fine line, you weren't good enough. The three or four boys that I've got in that centrally the pitch, you know, in Finlay Gray, Blair, McKee and Wilson, I wouldn't change them for MD in this league. Do you know, I wouldn't change them for MD in this league. I think the dynamic in there is really good, we've got that everything. Do you know, I think you missed you you seen when Blair wasn't playing. Do you know, sometimes you see players like that when they're not playing, you, you appreciate the most. Uh do you know, and, and he's probably the, the, the least profile of the other three or four, because our three or four, do you know, dibs amongst the goals. Joe's a creator and Joe will always set pieces and Finlay catches eye because he sees energy but so he's probably the, the one with the least profile but Blair's been a great sign he never seen the way he just sits in front of that back four screens that back four a lot of, a lot of people don't see it but certainly we at the club would see it and appreciate it and Jim McAllister has just given you it's a shame we're not on camera because he's just given you the most vigorous bit of nodding <laughs> that I've ever seen from anybody I think in terms of the round there because if you're his biggest fan Jim certainly his second biggest fan that's how Jim's in my background too <laughs> yeah. that's why you got him to identify players for you over the summer exactly and Ryan Blair was number one yeah and nobody else <laughs> <laughs> no Stevie thank you very very much for your time and thank you for joining us and I it's good to 
get to know a wee bit more about you because like I said I feel like every week I'll ask you about the team or the game or things like that but it's good to actually get to know a wee bit about your background so thank you very much for your time here. No, thanks for having me on lads, appreciate it. So if we spoke about the Forfar game and the Elgin game being a bit unusual and that the Elgin game was a kind of all action, all flair, really, really attacking performance and then the Forfar game we saw the Dumbarton team make defensive mistakes almost for the first time this season. The Clyde performance, that first half at Clyde, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that if Suns have been 4-5-0 to the good at half time and this is me trying to look at it through kind of as unbiased eyes as I could, Suns have gone in 3-4-5-0 up at half time, that wouldn't have been an unfair reflection. My worry that night was the fact that the game wasn't done at half-time, because it should have been. And you just knew that one goal could have changed the game, and the game should have been out of sight, because that first half was as good a performance in one half of football I've seen them batting for some time. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And it, it looked strange, because you'd think normally home advantage, and Suns are a team who play on a grass park, Clyde play on a big, a really big-looking Astro Park at Hamilton. But actually, the big, expansive AstroTurf pitch, it seemed to really, really suit the way that Suns played that night. Like this passing was slick. The players, so I'm thinking the two wingers especially, and Orsi and Greg Wilde, they had an absolute field day with the space they were getting into, and both of them look phenomenally fit at the moment. I think there's something in there that people don't uh, take account of, is you always talk about how your own team plays. You don't always give credit to the way the opposition play. The week before, Forfar had set themselves out to stop us playing football. Clyde set themselves out to play football in their own way and it didn't work for them because we, we were better than them. But you, you never account, you always think, we did this, Dumbarton did this, Dumbarton didn't do that. And don't give credit to the fact that the opposition have actually got a part to play in a game as well. Yeah, I absolutely. And another point that's maybe worth touching on is that OK, I know that in League One, Clyde and Peterhead are quite a wee bit of drift at the kind of bottom of that league. Suns have now beaten both of them. Now, it's unusual for a Dumbarton team to beat a team from the league above. I think we were we spoke about it after the, uh, after the Clyde game or after the Peterhead game earlier in the season. And there was a Morton game in the Challenge Cup in 2018. And before that, I think you're going back to that game in Kirkcaldy, the John Gemmell game in the Scottish Cup. Yeah, we, we, we haven't a history uh, of, of beating teams from, from a higher division, uh, but both those games that we talked about there about Clayton Peter Red, Dumbarton deserve to win both of them. Yeah, I absolutely, and, and like I said, I know that the two clubs are struggling in their respective leagues, and Peterhead when we went up there, they only had one or two subs, but it's still a team from the league above, and it's, it's in this, this sounds disrespectful, but in the smallest way possible, it's still a giant killing when you're beating a side from a division above you. Now, we go from the wide expanses of uh, New Douglas Park to the slightly less wide expanses of New Dundas Park on a day where, I think, walking down to the ground, I felt like everything had gone wrong for Dumbarton. They were without Gregor McCannon, and then Ryan McGeever pulled out, I think, just in the morning of the game he was ill, and he wasn't able to get himself out of bed. And I looked at that and I thought, oh And then Stuart Carswell went off at half-time. <laughs> that could be the most important point we get this season. Because as far as I'm concerned, that, that is a point that said that this team are in it together. Because, as you say, everything had gone wrong. Not only the three instances you gave there, we conceded a soft penalty kick just before half-time. Carswell doesn't come out in the second half. You're going with two right-backs and two left-backs as your back four. One who hasn't kicked a ball all season. And you also lose your sitting midfielder and Ryan Blair. And you think, can anything else go wrong? And yet we pick up a point from it and then find that the three teams below you all lose 
So that could be the most important point of the season. Yeah, so I mean, in that Bonnie Rigg game, you had players playing in positions that weren't familiar to them. Eden Lynch playing his first game since April. And he was saying to me after that he was cramping up after, you know, like I think 15, 20 minutes into that second half, his legs were all already cramping up. That was, so there are two games this season, if Suns are going to have a successful season, that I think we'll look back on as key moments. That's one of them. And an Athletic away in the game where Greg Wilde scored the winner, having been, you know, very much out the side, brought in when uh, Declan Byrne had been ruled out for quite a wee while, when Ryan Wallace was suspended, brought in Greg Wilde and he scored a winning goal, kept a clean sheet and won away at Gallibank. Those are the two games that I feel we might look at back on the end of the season, regardless of where Suns finish and go, you know what, those were massive results. I've always believed that there is a turning point in the season and to me it would be Bonnie Rigg, but Annan will be up there as well, but there will be another one before the end of the season. Yeah, and we just hope it turns the right way. <laughs> that leaves us with only the last two games uh, to talk about with Sterling Albion's game, or Dunbar's game of Sterling Albion today as we record this, which is whatever day it is, 7th of January, called off, uh, which we found out midway through, and I think that Faz did very well to sort of uh, not flinch when I showed him that. But uh, that leaves us with the East Fife game at home to talk about in the Albion Rovers game away. And the East Fife game at home was a particularly big game for you and for the rest of the 150th committee. Yes, uh, it was the, the game that we've been planning for for uh, months because obviously we knew that that was a game closest to the actual 150th anniversary. We'd asked the Scottish League if we could have a home game that day and they very generously granted us it. So we'd been working up to that. Um, we knew that uh, we couldn't, we weren't going to have an ex- extravagant celebration because of the fact of um, a, a few things, one of them being the fact that this time of year you can't plan for the weather and we didn't want to be too extravagant and end up uh, costing a club money because we, we were uh, inviting 200 people to, to a game and then having to tell them it's off and you've got all the costs attached to it. But the important thing about it is that it's a game on on the park and we managed to, to, to play particularly well, I thought, or control the game well without actually playing at our best. I think that was something that is quite an interesting point to touch on as well, is that it felt like Dumbarton maybe were in third gear, fourth gear, and that they could have kicked up if they needed to, but they didn't need to, and it was almost... I don't want to use the term preservation, that's maybe not right, but players were maybe going, right, we know what we can do to win this game without putting ourselves at risk of injury, without, you know, tiring ourselves out ahead of an Albion Rovers game on what's going to be a heavy Clifton Hill pitch. And that just felt like a really professional, polished performance. I think professional is absolutely the word for it. I think it's all too easy um, to think that you can just go gung-ho and go and score goal after goal after goal. I think when you get yourself a couple of goals in front, you preserve the lead. You make sure you don't allow the opposition back into the into the game. And that's what we did because we defended particularly well when we had to. But we were always on the ascendancy and could and probably should have scored more goals. And I guess the important aspect of that as Stevie Farrell will touch on, as Brett Long will touch on, is another clean sheet as well. And although Brett didn't have a lot to do when he was called upon, he made an absolutely outstanding save towards the end. Well that's what he's done all season. Because because of the, the strength of the back four very often he doesn't have a lot to do in a game, but then he'll have to pull out one exceptional save, and he's done it every time he's been asked to do it. And that brings us on to the final game of the month, which was the Albion Rovers game on Hogmanay. Uh, we, we spoke about the Elgin game and the Clyde game being free-flowing and great to watch. The Albion Rovers game is one that you would have uh, forgotten by the time you got home. 
Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it was uh, instantly forgettable. It was. Having said that, there were still good points to it. I mean, we still defended exceptionally well. We just didn't create chances. And I don't think in the whole game the goalkeepers had, had more than a, a save each to make, although both sides did kick the ball off the goal line. But it was a game of few chances, but um, Dumbarton on that day just didn't uh, create anything going forward. Yeah, and Sun's next in action, well, we don't know when this podcast is coming out, but probably next in action on Saturday against Forfar Athletic, where Gregor Buchanan will be out suspended, which is a big, big loss because he's been phenomenal this season. But there could be brighter news on the horizon with Declan Byrne back in training. Now, people maybe forget that Declan Byrne is still Dumbarton's top scorer this season. The goals he scored at the start of the season, he got a double against Sterling Albion. How big a result that could be. He then got the winner away at East Fife and he obviously got those two in that game against Amman Athletic as well. So how much are you looking forward to seeing Declan Byrne back in action? Well, I think you always look forward to seeing a striker back in action. Although the thing that, that uh, again, you notice from, from successful sides is Declan Byrne, yes, he's top goal scorer with five goals, but we've had 14 different players that score goals this season. So it's not been reliant on one player. And quite often, if you look at other sides in the league, they're heavily dependent on one player. Kane Hester at uh, Elgin, very heavily dependent. Charlie Riley at Albion Rovers. If you can snuff those players out, you have a chance of winning the game. Opposition playing against us don't know where their goals are coming from because they're coming from all over the park. And that's an important thing if a side is going to be successful. And hugely important as well that they're coming from the bench. How many times have we seen players come off the bench this season and make an impact? And it feels like that's something that Dumbarton maybe haven't had, certainly last season, was you didn't look at the bench and see an Ali Love or see a Ross McLean, a guy who can come on and, and be a match winner. Or like we've seen in, in previous weeks with David Wilson and Greg Wilde stepping up, you know, Dumbarton, this Dumbarton squad, although it's not big on numbers, it feels like there's a wee bit of strength and depth there that maybe fans underestimated as well. Well, I think that that's what the manager has set out to do. I think he went for quality rather than quantity. And you're, you're right, um, you look at the bench and you think, well, there are players on the bench every week who can come on and change the game or can shore it up if they need to shore it up. The difficulty would come if we have a run of injuries and you don't have the, the, the squad depth. But um, hopefully that won't be the case. Yeah, we're keeping our fingers crossed. Well, that's all we've got time for. We came down to the stadium. We stood on a slightly soggy pitch. We spent half an hour replacing batteries in a broken podcast machine. But it has been productive in one way or another and that we've got through this. We hope that you have enjoyed listening to it. My thanks go to Jim for, for standing in as our emergency goalkeeper. Did you have a pleasant time? Yes, I enjoyed it. Thanks, uh, Fraser. <laughs> Excellent, Mel. This is just time to say like, subscribe, share, do all that great stuff that gets us views and... You know, we might even make some good money out of it this week, unlike last week or the previous weeks or anything that we've ever done to the club before. But no, thank you very much everyone for listening and we hope that you have enjoyed it as much as we have.